0: Father, we are a needy people. (laughs) The last two years, last year and a half, should just be another reminder. We are not in control. (laughs) Oh, we try to find solutions through science, politics, money. At the end of the day, we are helpless before you thank you O father that you the almighty have seen fit to step into time and space and you've given us your word you've given us your living word jesus christ and fathers we go to the text today may our hearts be all the more open to recognizing that indeed you are the sovereign one who are we who is like you O god as the song sings. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Exodus chapter 15. That is the text for today, Exodus 15. We've been walking through the life of Moses. We will resume our study of Luke. You remember the Gospel of Luke. It's still there. And uh, we will resume our study of that starting in the fall. But we are in Exodus 15 today as we move through the text. It was 1861, Julia Ward Howe made a visit to the Union troops camped there at Washington, D.C. As she left the site that evening in her hotel, she penned some very powerful words. It was a hymn that, that linked the judgment of the wicked the end of the age from Revelation with the Civil War. Of all the songs written during this time frame, perhaps none is as strongly identified with the Union cause today as Julie Ward Howe's Stirring the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Songs, such as the song written by Howe, can and often are intertwined with history, aren't they? Events that are, that are marked with someone breaking out. You think you're living in a musical. They break out in song. They, because they, they can recount the event. They, they stir the hearts, don't they? And they can help shape a worldview. Songs are not foreign to Scripture. In fact, one of the earliest songs recorded in Scripture, and undoubtedly one of the most formidable songs that's recorded in Scripture is this, in Exodus chapter 15. It's called the Song of Moses. It will be referred to in Deuteronomy and it's referred to in Revelation of all things. And so we'll get to that later. It's also called the Song of the Sea. We read a section of it uh, this morning in responsive reading. The the rabbis, rabbinic literature, say that when the song was sung, it's on the shores of the Red Sea, they've crossed through and they've watched God eliminate the enemy, the Egyptians. It's, the rabbinic said that even the, the infants within the womb broke out in melody, rejoicing. Let's go to this text. This song is, is broken down. We're going to break it down. Scholars debate. Some say it's in three portions and, or seven stanzas. We're going to break it into two sections, uh, one through 12. And let's read those first 12 verses. It says Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. Literally in the Hebrew, it's he, he has triumphed gloriously glorious. For emphasis, you better believe it. A world power was just eradicated at the Red Sea. The horse and the rider, that term could also be rendered Chariot. He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God. Notice the the faithfulness here that they're recognizing. And I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Interesting. The Lord is his name. The chariots of Pharaoh and his army, he has thrown into the sea. He has chosen officers, or his choice officers, were also drowned at the Red Sea. The depths have covered them up. They were thrown down to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has shattered the enemy. And in the greatness of your majesty, you have overthrown those who rise up against you. You sent forth your wrath, and it consumed them like stubble. That's the same word used of the straw that they had together together for making bricks back in chapter 5, verse 12. And by the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. Sometimes my children in the morning, their nostrils could do that too. But yes, we won't. This is not morning breath, right? They'll shoot me later for saying that. The waters stood upright like a heap and the deep waters were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will chase. I will take over. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be satisfied. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearful in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them up. Or Sheol, the death swallowed them, consumed them. The text states... One commentator states of this song, this poem praises God as the sole agent of salvation. Israel did not cooperate or even play a minor role. The figure of Moses, he's absent. He's omitted. Yahweh alone has affected the miracles at the sea. In other words, ultimately, this isn't about the destruction of the Egyptians. This isn't about the rescuing of the Israelites. This is about God. It is what we call theocentric. It's focused on On the Lord, and so this first section, which we have just read in your notes, I've entitled it "Praising God for His Victory." There's first a praise to God in the verses, first twelve verses, and then Moses will switch in verses thirteen through nineteen of praising God for His protection and care for His people as they move forward. As we see here in the text, this is a declaration of who the Lord is. And it's interesting because all the way back in chapter 3 when Moses met the Lord at the burning bush, remember what Moses said you know, what am I to tell the people when I go to Israel who, to the Israelites? Who, who, are, who sent me? What am I supposed to tell them? And throughout the plagues we saw the question was continually stated, I'm going to do this, the Lord says, so that you can know me not only the Egyptians but also the Israelites. And this is saying this is who he is. In in many ways, this song answers the question that we have seen time and time again through chapters 3 to this point. The horse and rider will begin this song. He will also, in verse 19, we see reference to him again, or the Egyptians, and it's seen actually three times that reference is made in two allusions of the destruction of Israel. But again, the focus is on ultimately the Lord Notice in this song as he breaks out, look at verse 2, I love this. He's given this declaration, this is what God has just done. I mean, here they are standing on the shores of the bank of the Red Sea, and they see all these Egyptians, and the dead horses lying there, and they have witnessed firsthand what God has done that morning. Massive destruction. And I love in verse 2, Moses personalizes all of this, doesn't he? This isn't a distant God. This is what God's done for us and for me in particular. Notice what he says in the verse. Look at the pronouns. My strength, my song, my salvation, my God. He highlights that time and time again. I love what Garrett says in his commentary on Exodus. God is not only great in himself, he is also great and good towards us. Isn't that great? That's exactly what's being conveyed here. Well, the text tells us in verse 3, as they declare their praise to God, they say, the Lord is a man of war. We don't often think of that as a reference to God, do we? But remember, turn back to chapter 14, verse 14. What did Moses say to the Israelites as they were freaking out? They got the sea behind them. The Pharaoh and his, his elite squad are coming to take them. And what does... Moses tell the Israelites in verse 14 of chapter 14, the Lord will what? Fight for you. He will be your warrior. Notice what the Egyptians state later in chapter 14, verse 25, just as about they to uh, be drowned, it uh, says the Lord said to Moses, extend your hand. But verse 25, he jammed the wheels of their chariots. And the Egyptians said, let's flee from the presence of Israel for the Lord, what? Fights for them. And so as they break out in song to exalt the Lord, they say, look, he is our mighty warrior. It's a term that will be used throughout scripture. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13, it states, the Lord goes out like a mighty man or warrior, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal, he cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. You know what's interesting in Isaiah 42? Let me read to you the earlier part of this section. In earlier part of 42, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. (laughs) The Israelites have struggled with who is this Lord. The Egyptians certainly have struggled with who is this Lord. And it's all tied with this mighty warrior. Isaiah 42 goes on to state, I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise due me with idols. That was the problem with Pharaoh. He was having a tug-of-war with God, and he lost big time. Sing to the Lord a brand new song, Isaiah 42 says. Praise him from the horizons of the earth, you who go down to the sea and everything that lives in it. I can't help but think that as Isaiah's pinning this, he's reflecting back to the song of Moses, and all that occurred as they praised God for who he is and what he has done. This is our one who declares, this is his name, Right? This is the one who walks in glory. And so we see in verse 3, this song of Moses states, this Lord, he's a man of war, that is his name. In verses 4 through 8, the text we just saw, there's certainly praise for God's sovereignty, his power. But did you see what they also praise the Lord for in this song? His wrath. (laughs) It's not one we often think of, is it? praising God for his wrath. Psalm 76 says, Certainly your anger, judgment upon men, will bring you praise. This text becomes a little difficult. I mean, how could Scripture rejoice in God's wrath? Isn't he a loving God who cares deeply? One statement from a a scholar on the Lord's wrath states, The wrath of God is not a vehement Irrational, vindictive, arbitrary, capricious venting of some supernatural spleen. (laughs) It is the manifestation of the repugnance of a holy God against all who defile, disrupt, and destroy the world that he has made. One of the questions I was often posed to me by students was, you know, how can you talk about an angry God or a wrathful God? Well, let me give you three things about God's wrath if you're taking notes. First of all, God's wrath reveals a loving God who is going to discipline. You say, whoa, what do you mean by that? I would argue a parent who refuses to discipline is not loving their child. Trust me, I was then lying at the grocery store, <laughs> right? <laughs> Spare the rod, spoil the child. And I'm sitting there going, you know, you're not doing any service to this child. You're creating a monster who's going to be a menace to society, you know, and you're going to wreak havoc in his or her social life. Really? The, the idea of discipline is to care for. I mean, we discipline our, our children because we care for them. We want them to, to grow and mature. The same with God's discipline. He disciplines those he loves. God's wrath, again, reveals, I would argue, a loving God. But secondly, God's wrath indicates we have a holy God who cannot tolerate sin. Uh, think about it. If if God doesn't judge sin, if there's not wrath against wrong, then we have either a fickle God or worse, we have a wimp. Right? It certainly would make scripture to appear as disingenuous since time and time again the Lord is declared as holy. And D.A. Carson in his uh, one book on the difficult doctrine of the love of God, he says the price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. It's a great statement. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. If you're soft on sin, you're probably soft on viewing God's holiness. Doesn't mean we walk around with a two-by-four ready to whack someone upside the head. There is grace. There is love. But part of God's wrath demonstrates we have a holy God. And third, God's wrath accompanies a God who must deal with sin. Thank the Lord he vindicates his name. Right? Think about it. There will be a day when all the wrongs that we're encountering in this globe will be made right. It may not be in our lifetime. It wasn't in the Israelites, all of those who'd lived years before this exodus. But what we see is a God who will vindicate. If He doesn't act against sin, then ultimately there would have been no Calvary. So when we talk about God and we praise him for who he is, part of that is he is a just God. He is a God of wrath. He will deal with sin. He has to deal with sin. And I would argue it demonstrates he is truly a loving God who cares deeply for us. Well, let's go back to verse 9. That's a much to think about there. The enemy said, I will chase, I will take. You know who this is? This is Pharaoh. Six times he uses the first person pronoun. I will do this. I'm going to do that. I can't help but think there were six plagues where Pharaoh, the text tells us Pharaoh hardens his own heart. (laughs) Interesting connection. But here he is. The very thing Pharaoh seeks to do to the Israelites will be done to him. It's God getting the last laugh. God is in charge here, not you, Pharaoh. These are my people, not your slaves. And we've talked about that as we've gone through the text. But I love what the song then does in verse 11, and it repeats the question twice. Who is like you? It's rhetorical. The the answer is assumed, no one. There is no God that can compare to Yahweh. No other gods are to be honored. Psalm 97, all who worship idols are ashamed. Those who boast about worthless idols, all the gods will bow down before him. The psalmist declares. The son of Ra, Pharaoh, Hathor, I'm name any Egyptian God you want to name, it's not going to hold back the sea or deliver Israel from enslavement. None of those are going to help them. And I would argue, no God of today, whether that's money, a job, or even a sport, is going to hold back the sea or deliver you from enslavement to sin. After all, what is idolatry? Hefferman, a New Testament scholar, says, idolatry is the practice of seeking the source and provision of what we need, either physically or emotionally, in someone or something other than the one true God. It is the tragic, pathetic attempt to squeeze life out of lifeless forms that cannot help us meet our real needs. Think about it. If the Israelites... And they'd crossed the Red Sea and they watched the destruction of the Egyptians and they said, you know what? We're going back. In fact, if they'd said that before they'd even started, let's say they, they had their wish when they wanted to go back there in chapter 14 before God, part of the Red Sea, they would have missed the opportunity to witness God work and deliver them. They would have missed the opportunity here in Exodus 15 to praise God and to claim his promises that he has given. And most tragic, I would argue is that they would have felt the opportunity to cling to the Lord and rest in Him, right? All of this would have been missed. They were, they were having that holy hissy, right, before God parted the Red Sea. And Moses says, just stop. Trust this one who can, who can fight your battles this is the one. Don't don't go back to the gods of Egypt. Look to this God who can protect and deliver you. And so verse 12 is a refrain. It rehearses it once again. This is what God has done for us. Yay. But the song doesn't end there. And this is what I love. The song of Moses, in many ways, the ver- verses 1 through 12 is all that we've seen in Exodus up to this point, how God has provided. The next few verses, 13 to 19, looks at what God is going to do for the Israelites. And and in fact, if you look at verses 13 and all the way down to 18, there are a variety of verb tenses that are used. They're all perfect tense, meaning it has occurred. And you go, wait a minute, my English version translates this in future tense. I know the NIV does, the ESV, the NET you notice it says that he will hear, they, they will take hold, they will do this. And you're going, why is it future tense if the Hebrew verb is, is past tense? Because it's called a prophetic perfect. In other words, for the writer of Exodus, it's as good as done. And, and yes, it's future, but in the mind of the song singer that, that's pinning this, it's, it's already done. This is our God who has provided And so, I love what Hamilton states in his commentary. Exodus 15, Moses sings not only poetically, powerfully, and passionately, but also prophetically. This is what God is gonna do. And so the deliverance of the Red Sea is only the beginning of what will transpire. And that's what we're gonna see here in the text. Notice he begins by rehearsing rehearsing in verse 13 the loyal love. That is a loaded term, there's been dissertations written on this Hebrew word chesed because what it's, it's, it's a covenantal love. It's a contractual love. And that love is displayed in God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm gonna care for you. I'm gonna provide for you. You are mine. And so it shouldn't surprise you that here we have your loyal love will lead the people whom you have, and I love this next line, you have redeemed. You have, you've paid the price to bring them to this point. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see some other enemies, not just the Egyptians. Now we come to the Edomites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, and the Philistines up above. It's interesting, these tribes, these nations that are being mentioned, if you look at a map, in other words, Israel's surrounded by them. The Canaanites are in the north. The Philistines are over to here. You've got the Edomites down, or Moabites down here. The Edomites over here. In other words, they're surrounded. Surrounded by these people, and yet God says, don't worry, I'm going to provide. In fact, they're going to be scared spitless of what you've done. Deuteronomy 20, it says, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you, that's the Edomites, the Moabites, the Parasites, and on you go, you for inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the text goes on, as the Lord your God has commanded. Well, this also creates problems, doesn't it? I've heard this many times. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You worship a God who says to annihilate peoples? How's that a, a loving God, a caring God? That's not the God I read of in the New Testament. In fact, Richard Dawkins, the prominent biologist and atheist, states that what we see here is a god that's vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, capricious, malevolent bully. That's his response. And so how how do you deal with this? Because the text tells us, hey, you're gonna go and there's these natives in the land, don't worry about it. I'm gonna take care of them. And later in Deuteronomy it says, you will annihilate. So what do you do with this? Let me give you some things to hang on your beak. First of all, a holy God must judge sin. The sin of the Canaanites was horrific. If we did a little study, in fact, I, I can show you archeologically as well. We, we see altars that were sacri- where they sacrificed two to four-year-old b- children uh, and the list goes on, the sexual deviance, etc. And you say, well, couldn't God have negotiated? Couldn't we have brought the UN together and tried to resolve this? He did, it's called creation. Psalm 19, says, God has displayed his handiwork. Romans 1 says, God has revealed his wrath in creation. They should have bent their knee. And I would argue they had 400 years to repent. Genesis 15, listen to this text. This is God speaking to Abraham. We're 400 years before this. It says, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Bummer. But we'll listen to what the text says. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And they did. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And he was. And they shall come back there to the fourth generation for the iniquity of the local yokels, the Amorites in particular, is not yet complete. God has waited 400 years for these local people to repent and bow before him. You say, well, how do they know creation? And Deuteronomy 9 says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your hearts. This is God speaking to the Israelites you are going to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Leviticus 18 says, I, I want to vomit them out. I'm so sick of them. Think about the Egyptians. Pharaoh could have repented. Could he not? Yes. The Ninevites did when Jonah went. Plague one. One could have repented. He hardened his heart. Plague two, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Plague three, hardens his heart. Eventually, God says, fine, let me harden your heart. Plague six, plague eight, plague nine, and plague ten. And so, first of all, as you look at this mandate to cleanse the land, first of all, a holy God must judge sin. Tory. Writes, listen to this. He goes, Those who regard sin lightly and who have no adequate conception of God's holiness will always find insurmountable difficulty in this command of God. But those who've come to see the awfulness of sin and have learned to hate it with the infinite hate it deserves, and who have caught some glimpse of the infinite holiness of God, have been made in some measure partakers of that holiness, will have no difficulty whatsoever with this command. It's an understanding of the awfulness of sin, and this morning we're going to take communion here, it's a reminder the awfulness of sin, it costs God his own sin. God was orchestrating these events, grace had been extended for 400 years, and yet they refused to repent. Secondly, I would argue the reason this command is here, and we see that the reason these Edomites and the Moabites are gonna fear is because secondly, a sovereign God is gonna take possession of his land. Did you notice what the text says? Verse 16, fear and dread will fall on on them. And then it says in verse 17, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your, not our, your inheritance, the place the Lord made for you, for your residence, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands have established. Eugene Merrill, in his book on Kingdom of Priests, look of the theology of the Old Testament, says it is clear that the land was considered Israel's divine right, and that the nations who occupied it were little better than squatters. <laughs> Yahweh was his owner. And Yahweh says, it's time to cash in. This is my land, this is, my, this is what I have promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting, in these 19 verses there's a progression they leave Egypt and are rescued. Then the Canaanites are gonna fear and eventually the Israelites are in the land. You, you see this as we move through it. It's very intriguing as the song unfolds. But there's a third reason, I would argue, that the Canaanites, etc., are gonna be dealt with and that is an almighty God protects his people. Do you remember Moses' words in Exodus 34? He's about to part and he gives these parting words to the Israelites. He, he says, listen, careful that you do not take on the gods of the locals. You must deal with them. Sadly, that becomes a real problem because in Joshua 24, it says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. And sadly, I can take you to archaeological sites. We could go to Tel Hazor where they find statues to pagan gods, Egyptian gods. Say, so how did they get there? <laughs> it says in the text in Joshua 24, serve the Lord. And later in Jeremiah 44, 8, it says making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt. God is going to judge them. God knew this was going to be a problem. When one has cancer, you remove it or you're gonna lose the host. For Israel's survival, the Canaanites will have to go. Israel will be corrupted by their presence and their influence. They will fall away from the Lord. And it's exactly what happened. Because they didn't take sin seriously. They did not take God's word seriously and it created an amazing problem. You say, well, what about the children? That seems really harsh to eliminate the Canaanite children as well. The sins of the parents have an impact on the Tyre family, and it was to stop the sin from continuing. It's, it is appalling. Uh, Tory goes on to state in his work on difficulties in the Bible, he says it's appalling that any people should be utterly put to the sword, but it's, listen to this, it's even more appalling that a society of people should have become so corrupt and debased that such treatment is deemed necessary in the interest of humanity. The Canaanites were a moral cancer, threatening the very life of the human race. The cancer had to be removed in order to save the body. If you do not have a people, the Israelites, that maintain their their purity and their allegiance to the Lord, we're not going to have a Savior come another 1,400 years. They gave us our Messiah this is serious stuff the promises that god has made to abraham hang in balance here if you you don't obey me you israelites in fact the lord is so ticked with them later on in the wilderness he says moses get out of the way i'm done i'm going to fry them all because of, of, of the sin that is so rampant unless we shake our heads and go my 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 isn't that awful we're sacrificing our infants on an idol as well. We have corrupted as a country so much of this globe. And we as a people group stand guilty before a sovereign God, do we not? Sin is called normal or acceptable. And that which is gross is applauded or even given a parade. Those who take stands their businesses are nixed from food markets or the vegetable market in a local town. We live in an age where God is saying to his people, stand strong, take heed, be very careful, because sin will corrupt. And, and yes, it's a glorious song, Exodus 15, and you just want to shout, yes! But you realize, we just need to further go down into Exodus, and you're like, Really? <laughs> Did we not learn? I mean, you just saw what God has accomplished. But in 18 and 19, in summing up another refrain in the song the, the, the song, the songwriter says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Nothing's gonna thwart it. Not the Canaanites, not the Egyptians, not even the Israelites. God is in charge. Well, what do we do with this glorious song? Let me give you three things there in your notes. First of all, God grants victory in our lives, ultimately for his glory. I think it's a reminder as we look at the Song of the Sea or Song of Moses, it's not about God destroying our enemies because we deserve to be rescued. Rather, it's about God punishing his enemies for his name's sake. Our salvation is simply because of God's grace. I love the old hymn writer William. Haman, he says, Awake and sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Wake every ear and every tongue to praise the Savior's name. Sing on your heavenly way, you ransomed sinners, sing. Sing on, rejoicing every day in Christ, the eternal King. Secondly, we can rejoice knowing that we serve a loving God that will not abandon his people. You know, when they were shaking their fist at Moses and ultimately at the Lord there on the other side of the Red Sea, if I was God, it wouldn't have been a pretty picture. (laughs) We'd taken out a paddle and spanked him. Are you serious? I just got you out of Egypt. Your bags are loaded with gold from the Egyptians and now you're complaining? I think I can take care of this. What an amazing God we serve, isn't it? He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's holy. He's just. He's loving and he is faithful. On Moses is close to his deathbed at 120 years on this globe 40 years growing up in Egypt 40 years leading this group of unhappy lot through the wilderness uh, I mean uh, the shepherding for 40 years and then 40 years leading the Israelites he states in Deuteronomy 31:6 be strong and courageous wow do not fear or be in dread of them who's the them The enemies, the Canaanites, the parasites, right? For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake us. Isn't that awesome? That's our God. He will not leave us nor forsake us. And you look at this, and I love the text. He says, he's gonna bring you to his home, his place of dwelling. And as a believer, we look to the day when he returns and takes us into glory to be in his presence no more pain, no more suffering. It's just one big exaltation of our mighty God. And C, in your notes, our lives need to be marked with praise to our great God. And After all, you're going to be singing praises for all eternity, so learn it now. The Song of Moses, you realize it's, it's, again, it's mentioned in Revelation 15, I mentioned this, but in 15.2 of Revelation, it says, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of the names standing before the sea. It, it, it's, it's a throng of martyrs who have died for the cause of Christ. And they sang, it says the text, the Song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Listen to these words. Great is and mighty are your deeds, O Lord God. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The songs are sung in harmony, aren't they? As they rehearse the Lord's deliverance, and both songs are not focused on us as people. They're focused on the Lord, His sovereignty, His justice, and His glory. Well, this morning we may not be able to join in the chorus there with the Israelites there on the shore of the Red Sea or perhaps the martyrs around the throne of God, but we can echo much of what they are singing. Why? Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, there's been a point in your life where you've said, yeah, I can't do this. In fact, Ephesians 2 states you were a children of wrath. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're under God's wrath. It's not a pretty place to be. But it says later in Ephesians 2, but God, who was rich in mercy, He gave us His Son, Jesus, who died on a cross, who paid the price for the sin. And it's it's, by faith, not by works. It's not something you do. How can you earn something before a holy God? What can you do that's possibly holy enough to earn His favor? It's through what Christ has accomplished. And so this morning, we have much to be praising the Lord about, don't we? We have been brought through a new exodus, a new Moses, Jesus Christ. It's our custom every first Sunday of the month to take communion and hopefully you received one of these packets. This is for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior. If you don't know him, today you need to bend your knee. Our God of the Israelites is the same God we serve today. He has not changed, and sadly, we as human beings haven't changed either, have we? Oh, we fret, we fear, and at times we are very ungrateful in light of what God has done. I thought it was fitting this morning as we reflect on what Christ has done for us to spend some time just praising the Lord for who he is, what he's done for us, how he has delivered us. So let's do that as we come to this communion. How are you doing? Is your life one, if you know Jesus as your savior, is it one that has, is showing gratitude? Is your life reflecting a life of praise? Perhaps there's some sin that needs to be confessed. Areas where, like Pharaoh, you say, I will do this. I will accomplish this. And the Lord says, no, you won't bend your knee. If you you don't know the salvation that that Christ is offering, today is the day. Come to this one who says, I will give you peace. I will give you healing. I will remove the shackles that have enslaved you to sin and guilt and free you. That's our Lord. (laughs) That's the mighty warrior. He can say that because his son came and died on that cross, paid the price. And he leads us, as we said, a new exodus, redemption found in his blood, freedom from sin. And oh, like the promise he gave to the Israelites, we long for the day when we will be in his presence. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are our mighty warrior. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread. It was a, to be a symbol of his body. In fact, he told us that, and he broke it, because that's exactly what would happen to the Lord on that cross. Why? So we're no longer sins, slaves to sin. <laughs> that we could be redeemed and declare him as our God, our Savior. And so, that night that he was crucified, he took the body of the bread, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he, he took the cup after supper, The juice symbolizes the blood of Christ. We don't take communion so that we can earn God's grace or help with our salvation. We do that because we are saved and we remember what he has done. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a covenant which, again, frees us from sin and allows us to call him Abba. (laughs) He said, do this every time you drink this in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you for our salvation. Thank you for Exodus 15, a song which we need to rehearse time and time again. You are the righteous God. You are the loving God. You are a faithful God. You are a holy God. And you are a just God who will deal with sin. And we thank you. James Montgomery Boy said it so well. Music's a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to the Lord and his truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It's saying yes to the truths we are embracing. And so, Lord, thank you for the song of Moses. Thank you for the song of the Lamb in Revelation. And what a day that will be when we will gather around the throne room of you with the saints who've gone before us. And we declare, worthy are you, O oh God, because you are a mighty warrior. You're the one who delivers. You are the one who redeems. And it's because of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.